This is the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast with Tracy Doherty Shanklin. If you're interested in labor and union benefit funds, well, you've landed in the right place. We are a go-to source for all things union benefit fund related, and we are going to bring you interviews with key decision makers and fund professionals that guide these plans. They'll share their insights, experience, unique perspectives, all of the latest developments and tips to unlock the mysteries of multi-employer benefit funds. Time is short, so let's get started. I am very excited to continue the discussion about diversity and systemic racism impacting America. Currently, there is a shift happening. We are witnessing businesses taking a stand against the injustices that have faced our Black brothers and sisters. Black Lives Matters is a conversation that is making its way to Wall Street. Recently, Pension and Investment Magazine interviewed REL Investments co-CEO John Rogers. Rogers made it very clear that businesses and the investment fund industry need to do a better job of not just creating jobs, but of creating leadership opportunities for African Americans. Institutional money management firms that serve multi-employer benefit fund clients can and should be a part of the act of healing. Our guest today is Randy Kender, the president of the AFL-CIO Investment Trust Corporation. Randy started his career with the AFL-CIO's Housing Investment Trust in 2002 and has been an integral part in expanding the Investment Trust Corporation strategies. Randy was instrumental in the creation and launch of the AFL-CIO Equity Index Fund and has continued to guide the strategic outreach of this effort. Perhaps the thing I like best about Randy is his commitment to mentoring youth. Randy serves on the board of the Mikva Challenge and Holtz Heroes Foundation. Both are organizations that empower our nation's underprivileged youth. He is a member of the Bank of Labor's Midwest Labor Advisory Board, which provides policy oversight for the bank. Randy attended the University of Notre Dame, played football, participated in track, and is a proud member of the NFL Players Association, having played for both the Green Bay Packers and the Philadelphia Eagles. I know Randy will educate and inspire you. So Randy, thank you so much for being with us today. Tracy, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by having you just share your story and background and how you came to be president of the AFL-CIO's Investment Trust Corporation. Well, thank you. You did a great job in the bio piece. That covers a lot of it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I got into this industry, this business kind of uh, by mistake. I was uh, living in D.C. and uh, I always thought I wanted to work in, in something that was connected to politics growing up. And uh, I was kind of starting my career working in uh, constituent services for a group here in, in D.C. And like many of us, you know, it happened that I knew somebody that um, works for many of us, not for all of us. But I knew someone, named, a guy named Steve Coyle, who ran the AFLCO Housing Investment Trust and did so for, I believe, he was at 26 years when he retired. Uh, Steve was a, a family friend and someone who I'd kept in touch with over many years and we had lunch and I talked about what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And Steve t- started telling me about the AFL-CIO's investment program, about what the Housing Investment Trust was doing, uh, about some of the things they're looking to, to branch out to do. And at the time, this is 2002, uh, the Housing Investment Trust had just launched a, a program for uh, home ownership, uh, working with a, a large lender 
They were working with unions across the country to help union members get into homes, but to do so through getting you know good loans, a paper loans. And so the program was set up to put together different types of home ownership, education fairs, and the like. And it was, it was kind of the beginning of, of other things they wanted to do. But if you remember that time, uh, everybody and the, their mother was was getting into loans, you know, home loans, and, and everyone was working in that industry and. The idea was to create a program that was really looking out for our members across the country. And he, he said, why don't you join us? You'll learn about what we do at the HIT, at the Housing Investment Trust. You learn about the homeownership energy. You get out and learn about unions. And, and you maybe like it. Well, that was, I think, February of 02. Worked on that program for several years. And when we dissolved that program, I moved to the, it was the multifamily group and then the marketing group. And and just kind of learned the industry from our point of view, from, from the labor's point of view. And it's at one point, I moved over to work on the AFLCO Building Investment Trust and continued in marketing and kind of our, our, our form of constituent relations and investor relations. And here we are 18 years later, and uh, my, my predecessor retired last year, and uh, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, We'd like you to uh, to take over as president of the, of the Investment Trust Corporation, the ITC. And here I am. Here I am. And, and it's been a great journey, but it's been one where you work with the AFL-CIO. You, you get up every day uh, remembering that every penny of, of money that you have any kind of a contact with, is is it comes from workers. It comes from their hard work. And the point of everything we do is to make sure that their hard work pays off in retirement. And so it's a, it's a fantastic mission. It's something that I believe in. I didn't know how much I believed in when I started 18 years ago, but it's a great way for me to, uh, to be keep motivated, to motivate others, and to do some really exciting things to really move that mission forward. Well, that's amazing. And I echo that. Most people who know me know that my father was a labor leader. And that was when I went into this business, that was one of the things he said to me is never forget who you're working for. And so I applaud that. So when we originally started to talk, the goal here was really to talk about all of the focus and discussion on racial inequality in America, especially since the Trayvon Martin murder, acquittal, the George Floyd tra- tragedy of late. That conversation is beginning to escalate given what recently happened. And I'm just wondering how the conversation about race has shifted since the George Floyd and these recent um, peaceful protests by the Black Lives Matters movement. You know, it's been uh, these past this past month. I guess it's hard. You know, obviously, we're, it's hard to keep track of time these days. The, the conversation has definitely uh, come to the forefront and intensified, and you know, since you know, since the the, the latest tragedy in, in Mr. Floyd, and I think. And I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say this because we've been dealing with this really international health issue where we all are, are at home for the most part. It has made it, uh, I guess, easier, intensify the things that we think about. And this particular issue, which has been around for a, a long time, now people are actually focusing on and you have corporations and uh, investors thinking about these things. Um, so yeah, it's a short answer. The, the, the conversation has intensified a great deal, both kind of publicly and privately. I can tell you that in my private life, 
you know, I, I don't go a day without having some sort of conversation, you know, some sort of conversation related to what the heck is going on in the world, especially on this front. Um, and I've had some very good ones. You mentioned my involvement with uh, the, MICFA, the MICFA challenge and with the Holtus Heroes. We've had some very, very strong and important conversations on that end about what this means for youth and for, especially for the MICFA challenge for those who get involved in civic, uh, in, in, in what it means for civic education for young people. On the Holtus Heroes side, we, we talk about it and how we can be better mentors and be better uh, be more involved in our neighborhoods and our communities. And in our industry, the conversation when you, when you talk about this stuff comes to a couple different things. Representation being probably the first, you know, as, as we've talked about and in many of the conversations I've had with leaders in our industry, our industry is, is very white. It's very white and very male, which is, I'm not saying anything ridiculous. On it. it is what it is. And what can we do about that? And what I've been excited about, or I guess, optimistic. what's made me optimistic about this moment is how many leaders, how many just pr- practitioners and, and folks in our industry really want to have that conversation now. And in the conversations I've had, it doesn't feel like they feel that it's been forced on them. I have people coming to me asking me questions about it, ask me what I think, ask me if, if it, to, to kind of look at something that they're thinking about doing. And the, and the interest seems genuine, um, and there's a lot of it. So yeah, the conversation has intensified a great deal. And then obviously on the, on the other side of that is what ramifications does this have or on what funds want to do and how they direct their investments? Are there ways that they could be investing? In, and I've had these conversations as well. Are there ways that these funds could be investing that reflect kind of a, a greater um, attention to the values associated with moving away from or making it clear that their values don't align with a society that or with, with, with any interest that could be racist or, or have some sort of systemic racism aligned with them. So there's been a lot of conversation all across the board and uh, it, it's been good to be a part of that and good to see that. That's inspiring to know that the conversations are happening with some frequency. I'm not surprised that there's conversations around diversity um, and racism, but that it's moving its way into the financial world to go as deep as who you invest with, which I think is wonderful. What do you think companies can do to achieve more diversity or inclusion in their workforces and in their supply chain? So, yeah, I'm glad you asked it. You know, there's to, to what you were just saying too. There, that whole the whole side of how companies choose to invest in the invest with is is going to or how funds choose is a big part of this as well. But on this point, you know, how can we kind of diversify the industry, or what can leaders and companies do? I mean, it comes down to creating uh, creating opportunity through recruitment. And I have no silver bullet on this. Let me say that from the jump, but. I just had a conversation the other day uh, with a leader in our industry where he talked about creating relationships with universities and organizations in order to find candidates and interest people in what we do. You know, he, he was looking at it for their industry and, and looking at uh, getting people interested in, in insurance and, and being actually an actuarial, you know, in that piece, which, you know, I fell asleep as, we, as he and I were talking about it, but no, but you know, being able to really highlight the opportunities that, that are there and uh, being able to talk about it in a way that really connects people in a way where you think about, well, how does this tie into my family's retirement and why is this important and so on and so forth? 
in that conversation, he talked a lot about the groups that his his company were building alliances with and the conversations that he was having with senior leadership in his company to get them more interested in and thinking about these issues and taking them seriously. And he talked about leaders kind of in the, in the diversity and inclusion part of our, of our industries as well and having conversations with them to find out best practices so that he can implement them for his company. These are all good things. I think, and, and this was a point we were talking about as well, it starts with recognizing that this is important and saying that it's important. It's been interesting watching how many, uh, how many corporations are putting out statements now you know, saying essentially we aren't racist and we don't believe in that, right? And, I, and, and there's been conversation around whether or not a statement is enough, is action more important, and so on and so forth. I actually think statements are a big deal. I think when you state what you believe in, you can then be held accountable for that. And getting a senior leadership in a company to recognize that this is part of our culture now, that being anti-racist, being for diversity and inclusion is, is who we are and what we need to act upon is the, is the most, maybe the most important step to really getting a change going. Which goes to how, what I was saying to you before, how many conversations I've had where the people on the other end of the call who initiated the call actually really sounded like they believed in what they were saying and were bringing personal things into it. So it's starting with kind of a culture change in your company and, and, and really pushing that forward and making it clear this is, this is what you've signed on for by being a part of this organization. And then you get to action. And how do we, how do we infuse everything we do with this belief, with this value? There are some good organizations out there that are you know, thinking about this all the time that groups should hook up with, but there's been a lot of work on this. I happen to know some folks who work in diversity and inclusion in the insurance industry, believe it or not, and uh, who have been working on this a long time who now are like, okay, everybody's ready. Let's do it. There are tools there that can be used. Um, it's just a matter of the company saying, let's go. Uh, these leaders saying, let's go, let, let's actually use them and not just do it for two weeks. Let's make it part of who we are. Yeah, I think the biggest hurdle, what we, how does it get implemented? Is it, you know, and to your point, all these companies that are out there that are saying, this is what our value is. Now they have to actually put action behind that. I actually saw one yesterday company that basically gave a report card and said, you know, when I saw this, I mean, the CEO said, when I saw this, I was pretty disappointed in myself, in the firm, and we can do better. I thought that was a really interesting approach from a company because it sa- says, we've really looked at this and now we're going to do something about it. So yeah, yeah. they'll be accountable to what, to what they've set up. I, I love that. I mean, I, I, we always say in our office, listen, any if we're getting information, that's a good thing, right? You can then act upon it. And making that first step, say, okay, well, let's look at what we do and, and you know, creating a grading you know, system for yourself and then realizing, hey, we didn't match up. Okay, now what are you going to do? You know, is this all window dressing or not? Um, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good start. And the other piece of it too, Tracy, I know you've seen this, is this is going to be, for some of these companies, it's great, as I was saying, for them to make it on their own, to say, hey, we're going to change this on our own. But for others... It's going to be forced upon them because their clients will make sure that they engrave them on what they do. And that goes to the kind of the second thing you were saying before about, you know, the investor themselves thinking about who they invest with 
who they trust to invest their money or work with and, uh, and, and kind of grading themselves on how they go about that. And there are some very active, you know, pension funds and the like who pay close attention to this. And when, you know, a manager in our space is being asked to, you know, to fill out all the requisite, you know, RFIs, whatever it may be, a potential client investor, and they get questions on how does your firm, you know, deal with, or how does your firm view diversity and inclusion? And they don't have an answer. It's real easy to find out. And if they haven't thought about it, they'll be exposed immediately. And we we get these all the time at the ITC. And, you know, we can show we're an organization that has believed in this for a long time. And, and we're, I'm very proud to say we're a very uh, diverse, a diverse crew on a small crew, but a very diverse one by gender and race and the like. So it's easy for us to talk about, you know, how we are represented in our, in our, on our team. For a lot of these firms, it's not. And the more they have to, they find themselves sitting in the back room saying, well, how can we classify this person in order to do, outside of all what's going on right now, they kind of look at themselves. And I, I've, I've heard these conversations before and they say, well, what is it we're doing that isn't up to snuff here? Why are we sitting here having this conversation why haven't realized before now that something is not quite right, and it'll hit their their bottom lines uh, with a lot of investors now. So one way or another, this has to happen. I mean, case in point, you know, I'm here in D.C., not our industry, but the the NFL team has been dragged dragged. Uh, they didn't they didn't do this on their own volition to to change their name after many years because it was going to hit the pocketbook. Right? So there's a couple different sides to this, but it's happening. Getting hit in the pocketbook will make anyone sit up and take notice. Thanks, Randy. But I'd like to pause our conversation right here. Please tune in again for the second and final half of our discussion with AFL-CIO Investment Trust President Randy Kender, where we chat about supplier diversity. Thanks again for joining the conversation where listeners connect with leading experts throughout the financial and investment world. Be part of the change. And that's it for this week's episode of the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast. We love to hear from you. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, head over to www.multiemployerfunds.com and let us know. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to next time.